I see a lot of stuff talking about Gen Z. I see a lot of stuff telling us about what Gen Z's like. I want to hear from leaders in Gen Z. As a Gen Z pastor, what do you hope for your generation? And what do you want to say to your generation? Gen Z has things to offer and gift the church. Are you paying attention? Did I catch right early on in the conversation today that you're at the church that, that you were going to before you came to NNU? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and what's, what is your position in the church? What are your response, your pastoral responsibilities and titles? Um, I'm the groups and missions pastor, and then I'm the secondary preaching teacher. That's awesome. And is that I what love you were hired in or have you? No, the position I was hired in was awful and I hated it. And I was like, God, why are you doing this to me? Um, but no, I'm here. I was like, I was essentially an administrative assistant to a few different departments. So what, how did the shift happen? It was. So I, when I graduated NNU, was originally going to go to Duke University and get my MDiv, and I had like a nice scholarship to do so, but then God was like, nope, and I was like, why, and then and New Life offered me a job, and I was like, okay, this is why, but then that, I hated that job, and I was like, okay, God, again, why, and then we had a ton of staff turnover, because our lead pastor got here in November before COVID hit, so it was like, New lead pastor, pandemic, and then the pandemic's happening. The natural staff turnover after a lead pastor change started happening. And so, but because that all happened, I got the, it was like chaotic and awful. And it was like 20,000 people all quit at once. But then we got to like restructure our entire organization and everybody got to be where they needed to be. So it was awful and stressful, but now I'm like, oh, okay, that's what God means by like pruning. Like he literally pruned mm -hmm. our church. And now I have like my, I'm in my sweet spot at 24 years old, which is ridiculous. That's awesome. Well, good on your leadership for taking the time to like evaluate. Oh my gosh. Our board and lead pastor are phenomenal, humble, prayer-centered, spirit-following people. And they, they were in the workshop at the Wesley Conference supporting you, weren't they? Yeah. <laughs> so cool. You had a yeah. cheer section. Yeah. I told them they weren't allowed to cheer, though. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what do Thursdays typically look like in the life of Elise Snowden? Pastor, reverend, um, ordained? Oh, I'm not ordained yet. Um, theoretically spring of 2024 okay working on it if Sweet. i can um if i'm preaching on sunday usually thursdays are we record our sermon for one of our alternative venues uh so usually thursdays can be sermon prep if i'm preaching if not a lot of my thursdays are communication and prep for the following week slash anything I have on Sunday because uh, my Sabbath is Friday so it's kind of like I'm trying to tie the ribbon on everything I need to for the week so that I can actually yeah. be off for the weekend and be prepared to just jump in on Sunday without okay. any prep Friday or Saturday so 
Sweet. And then sometimes I usually do meetings, some meetings on Thursdays. Wednesdays are like my protected no meeting zone. Um, so anything that didn't get taken care of Monday or Tuesday falls on Thursday. <laughs> okay. It's I've ha I have to read like I have prayers that I have to read before I start my devotional time to like properly orient my heart and my expectations mm. of what the time is for. Yeah, it's the, you know, Lord search my heart, test my thoughts so that I don't just go into it like it's a vending machine where I'm like, I have my devotional time. I want peace. I want wisdom. I want, you know, like, but I have to like check my motives every single time. That's really good. Tell me about how you became a pastor. Where did that journey begin? And how do you end up in at the church and in the positions you're in now? Yeah. Um, it's always funny. I have a lot of circles where I'm hanging out with people who aren't Christians and they always ask me, like, why did you decide to become a pastor? And it's a weird thing to articulate to people who aren't in the church because we have such spiritual language around it. But I always joke around and I'll be like, I didn't choose to. God told me to. Uh, it wasn't a thing I like wanted. It's a great response. Uh, I didn't really didn't grow up in the church, uh, started attending faithfully as a 16, 17 year old and really quickly fell in love with it, got involved, became a part of the body of Christ. Just um, actually at the church I'm serving at now here at New Life. They brought me into the family of God really well. And then I just started serving a ton and I just loved it. And I actually quit high school sports so that I'd have more time to be serving at the church and just wow. fully, fully like jumped into it as a teenager. And then um, I, you know, it was time for me to leave for college. So I started, I applied to a bunch of colleges. And since I was, you know, kind of a baby Christian in a lot of ways, I was like, I want to go to a Christian university and be with other Christians. Um not knowing I'd spend the rest of my life with other Christians as a pastor. So, um, but I, NNU, that was at the bottom of my list. It was in Nampa, Idaho. I'd never really been to Idaho. didn't care about Idaho. Um, I visited, it was the last college that I ever visited and was kind of like, let's get this done with. Um, but then I visited and I was like, this is where I want to go. Hmm. And it sounds cheesy, but I just got on campus and I knew that's where God wanted me. It's not cheesy. So, I get it. It's so, yeah, I hate talking about it. I'm like, such the, the NNU story. <laughs> it's like, I promise they didn't pay me to say this. This is actually right. what happened. NNU is not a sponsor. There are, there are <laughs> no a, They haven't given me anything. I'm kidding. In any way, for either one of us. And we're both alumni in school. Right. So I always joke around that I accidentally became... Nazarene, I only got the scholarship because I only became a member so that I could get the scholarship to go to NNU. Like, New Life was like, hey, if you, you know, if you're a member of the Church of Nazarene, you go to NNU, like, you get a scholarship. So I was like, cool, became a member, didn't know what Nazarene meant, like, didn't understand denominations, like, nothing. Um, and then, like, a month before I left for college, all of the pastors that I had been working with here started like scheduling coffee or lunch dates with me it's like that's so nice like they're just gonna want to say goodbye to me and wish me good luck at college whatever and then that's when I learned a pastor never just innocently takes you out for coffee they always have <laughs> there's always an agenda <laughs> yeah 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 what? so what they mean? all I don't know what you're yeah. talking about <laughs> yeah you're like 
I just had five of those today. Um, they all started telling me I had a call to ministry and I thought they were playing a prank on me. And I was like, did you talk to this person about it? And none of them had talked to each other about it, but they all felt led by the spirit to tell me that wow. they felt I was called to ministry before I left for college. Cause I was still like undecided major and all that. And so uh, it was a very overwhelming experience because I didn't understand what it meant that I was called to ministry, but I also had this overwhelming presence from the spirit. So I did understand what it meant. You know, like mm -hmm. I knew God was pointing me towards something much bigger than I could understand. Uh, so I went to NNU undeclared and spent a lot of time around Michael Kipp and <laughs> praying about my calling. And I said, I've heard it from other people, but I want to hear it from God. And I just got to this point where God just put experience, experience, conversation, conversation in my past that just affirmed it for me. And I remember having this feeling. I stood outside of my freshman dorm and called my parents and I said, I, if I don't go into ministry, I will regret the rest of my life. That is what my purpose is in this life. Wow. So um, very accidental, but also very a very powerful and humbling what's, experience. What's the accident? I, I don't know. I mean, you said it twice now. It's accidental, but it doesn't. It doesn't seem accidental to me, and it doesn't seem. It doesn't seem like it. It's also not like you, what your intention was. Yeah, that's. I think that's when I joke around about being accidental. I mean, it was not my intention to like become a Nazarene or become a pastor like it was all of these like steps that God just put in front of me and like it wasn't God was like because I think for a lot of people it was like I went to a camp or a work and witness trip when I was 13 and God called me to ministry and then seven years later I know what it looks like now but for me it was kind of the opposite where it's like I kind of found myself in it and then felt affirmed uh, to be there gotcha yeah yeah okay but it, it also doesn't sound like you were resistant towards it. Sometimes that's a part of people's story where like God called me as a kid and I just didn't want to do it. And I ran away to Joppa for 30 years and lived in the belly of a whale the whole time. The, uh, um, yeah, I think because I didn't really grow up in the church and I didn't have a picture of what it meant, I had no idea. So like, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Um, so maybe that's why I didn't have some of the resistance because I was like, sure, like, this is what God is calling me to do. I'll do it. And I had like, you know, recently like had this entire sanctification moment, like as a 17, 18 year old. So I was like, you know, I think I was probably so on that, like on fire camp high that I was like, I'll do anything. Says. That's great. And then, and then later you're like, oh, okay, this is what that means. But those are the things I found that have gotten me through too. Like, um, sure. and I, I mean this in a very positive way, but that naivety can be a huge, huge, like asset. I don't know what I'm getting myself into. So yeah, I'm going to say yes to God. But even if you did, you'd still have the choice to make. I have the choice to make knowing what I'm getting myself into. Will I be obedient or not? Right. Yeah. Well, 100%. That's, I mean, that's, you know, when we talk about walk by faith, not by sight, like that's essentially what we're trying to communicate in that. And it, it took me a while to realize my, um, like, baby Christianity-ness was actually a strength to lean into, not something to be embarrassed by, because I did go through, go through some culture shock, going from like, 
public school not raised in the church to NMU, or there are a lot of people who were either raised in the church or like went to private school or were homeschooled. And it was a very different culture. And I remember like a lot of the jokes I was making people did not like, and like there was an adjustment there. And I remember in my first like bib lit class, um, intro to Bible, I, I'm always the person who like, anybody want to read I'll always read I love reading and if I'm not reading out loud I'm not paying attention so I was like I'll read and I was reading um from scripture and I pronounced apostle with the t like I said apostle because I didn't know it was like my first time seeing that word and like people started like laughing at me and I was like I had this moment of like what did I get myself into like I felt mm. like such a, an outsider and so experiences like that uh, blinded me to the fact that like my newness was actually something to embrace and yeah. to let other people know like this is what not everybody knows all this stuff so it took me a while to kind of like own it hmm. so the pastors that met with you for coffee and I mean there's people that invested in you I'm assuming and people that you yeah. looked up to they were your example of what it meant to be a pastor so were you looking at them and going well if God's calling me to be a pastor and this is what it looks like in their lives and yeah bring it on like I want to do that was that was yeah. that some of your experience too or my projection yeah and I and I my life was deeply transformed because of the work they did in my life and so I was like if that's the type of person I get to be for other people then sign me up like that was so attractive to me um but yeah I did have a lot and that's one of the reasons why I'm happy that I went to Nampa, Idaho for college because there are so many different um, churches there that I got to see different types of expressions when I'd only known the one that I had just come from. And so I got to see what all, pa you know, different pastors, different ministries, different churches, different contexts, cultures, etc. And I mean, like something weird, all of the pastors at our church while I was here as a high schooler, they all loved running. And I was like, you have to run. Like running is a spiritual discipline for all pastors. And I was like, I don't think I can do it. Nope. <laughs> like I hate running. So no, that was just the crazy ones here in Oregon. Right. It's an Oregon pastor. <laughs> I've met some other ones. There's some other crazies out there. Yeah. Um, yeah, you and Brent Peterson are also kind of crazy when it comes oh, to... Oh, <laughs> I'm not the caliber of runner that Brent is at all. I just run so I can get to the next obstacle quicker. That's the only reason. Yeah, for sure. I I lured you into this conversation today with the let's talk through your Gen Z workshop slides from the Wesley Conference. Oh, and, yeah. and And we're going to do that, but I've had this question in the back of my mind as we've been getting ready to, to Zoom is... Why did you pick this topic and why how the invitation come about for you to be a workshop leader at the Wesley Conference? And why did you pick this topic um, before we jump into it? Yes, um, it's actually kind of a fun conversation. Um, I was visiting Idaho for a friend's wedding in September last year. And uh, met up with Brent Peterson to grab coffee, catch up and talk and had just been reflecting on some of the lessons I've learned in my first couple of years of ministry and um, just excited to share that with a, a professor and um, also be mean to him and tease him about the things that his classes didn't prepare me for <laughs> in ministry. <laughs> Good for and you. Um, yeah, <laughs> you got to be mean to Brent Peterson. And... <laughs> 
he, he was like, he invited me. He's like, Hey, like, these are a lot of really valuable leadership lessons that you've learned. Um, do you want to come teach a workshop at the Wesley conference? And I was like, yeah, that sounds really fun. And so then I emailed him back about it in October. And then he did email me back until like three weeks before the conference, actually confirming that I was doing it. So I like, I wasn't sure I was actually doing it. Um, but then I am glad I'm kind of glad I didn't know because I didn't have time to overthink it. But as I was thinking about it, I was like, I don't want to teach a workshop on my leadership lessons because I feel like a lot of the stuff I've learned is pretty basic. Like most pastors have learned those things in their ministry. And I was like, I want to actually, I want to teach a workshop where I can take advantage of the perspective or the strengths that God has given me um and like use that space to talk about something that I am passionate about or that I think I have a unique perspective on not because I'm you know smarter or better than anyone but because of who I am and the context I come from and so I said hey I feel like I've been in a lot of places as the token Gen Z person and on the staff get made fun of as the Gen Z person um but there is a lot that I see there that I actually would love you know, space to dive into and start a conversation with fellow ministers about what the relationship between Gen Z and the church looks like. So it started off as an invitation to do something else, but then I was like, hey, Brent, what if I did this instead? Because this really is where my heart is and just the reality I find myself in as someone who is a pastor and is Gen Z and sees um, the relationship between my generation and the church on display in all of my friendships and, and social circles and social media. And so that's kind of where that uh, initial conversation came from. Sweet. So as I was in the workshop that you were leading, um, if I were to summarize it, I mean, the, the title is Gen Z's uh, Holiness Superpower which I was intrigued by the title, just seeing it on the screen that day in, in, in the workshop. I'm like, oh, where is she going to go with all this? Yeah. Um, and then subtitle, how Gen Z's characteristics and our distinct Wesleyan holiness identity will empower us to participate in God's redemptive mission. These are your words. This is what you typed. This is what you yeah. presented with us. But if I were to summarize it by own words, I want to I test it with you and see if my takeaway from the workshop is congruent with your heart intention. And it's, it's this, mm -hmm. like Gen Z has things to offer and gift the church. Are you paying attention? Yeah. Like mm -hmm. that's my takeaway as yeah. a Gen Xer, as a, as yeah. a 46 year old pastor in the church of the Nazarene. Um, is that, is that a fair summary? Oh, 100%. I think one of my favorite parts of the entire um, conversation was when I was really when we were f reflecting on the question of are we going to be so caught up treating Gen Z like they're the problem or the enemy of the church that we are failing to see how God might want to use Gen Z to be a part of the solution yeah. of what's going on um, and it really is because that is what the process of my ministry and theological education journey was I remember like reading these books about like um, this book, Rediscovering an Evangelical Heritage, just reading about the early holiness movement and a lot of the roots of the Nazarene church and Methodism in this. 
And just there was this passion for social justice and this passion for spirituality and this passion for community. And I just remember being like, those are so many things that are at the forefront of my generation and people my age. And uh, I just remember feeling in all of my theological classes and all of my Nazarene or holiness centered classes, just excited that like, whoa, our roots, our Nazarene, our holiness roots are so aligned with the passion of the gen of my generation and just seeing the whole like seeing the potential for us if we align ourselves with the holy spirit for a move to happen through that i love it you you gave in here some generational theory mm -hmm. and really really delved down deep into well as deep as you can in a workshop you know right uh in, introduction but different aspects of of that. I mean, I've the the bullet point in front of me here on the slides: communication and technology, politics, faith, spirituality, money, consumerism, leadership in the workplace, and so how these different age groups engage. Here's what I want to know out of your slides: What are your main things that you wanted to convey? You felt like were super important, and you hoped that like maybe one, two, maybe three things that people walked away from that are on the slides here that we could look at together. Um, I think if you go to the slide with the Isaiah 43 verse, yep. we've kind of touched on that already when I was talking about kind of the passion for why I did this workshop. And that is the, um, parallels that I do see between this generation and, um, our distinct Wesleyan roots. And for, I mean, even for people who aren't that I think something that we uh, need to, a truth that we need to live in as people of God is that our methods and our understandings will always pass and fade. Um, and the, the work of God is always new and far more vast than we could ever understand. So as we approach any conversation of the church or culture or the Bible or anything, just Having this understanding that we see articulated in Isaiah 43, that if we get so stuck dwelling on the things of the past, which were good things, like God parted the sea, God made a way, but these are things of the past. And if we get so fixated on the methods and the hows of the past, that we might miss out on the new thing that God is doing that's different than what we've ever understood. Um, just this... I guess, humble recognition as people of God, uh, that God is wanting to do a new thing in us. That's what we celebrate. That's at the center of our faith is the resurrection, right? That where there was death, Jesus brought new life. And uh, so we need to be open to the new things that God might want to do and not be blinded by our own, I guess, our own desires or thoughts or opinions or, you know, so I think that's kind of at the heart of the conversation. And I, I heard that heart in, in the workshop and we need reminded of it. Give me a practical example of something in the church of the Nazarene right now that you think is a poster child for this of like, look, this is getting in the way and we need to make, we need to make way for new things. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest shifts that I see, and this is definitely specific to the, um, you know, United States of America context of the Church of the Nazarene, 
Um, I would speak for the USA Canada region, but I don't know anything about Canada, so I can't speak for them. <laughs> I have Canadian friends, but I'm not speaking on their behalf. Right. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Um, I do see um, uh, this shift of understanding our own uh, backyard, our own country as a mission context, as legitimate as any global missional context. And I think that is a huge shift of paradigm for Nazarenes, um, because for so long, missions meant global. Uh, missions didn't necessarily mean local. And even by me saying that, I know that sometimes that creates a sense of anxiety because it almost sounds like I'm saying throw away global, but I'm not saying throw away global. Right. Um, I'm saying we need to view view missions as local and global, not just global, not just local. And I think that is a significant shift that we're seeing in the Church of the Nazarene, and even, I mean, from a practical standpoint, I oversee our local and global missions here and the expression of that at New Life. I oversee our um, partnerships and all those things. And uh, even just the practical ways of like, how do we best use our resources to bless people locally and globally? How do we hold the tension of being faithful ministers to the neighborhood God has placed us in? Like we exist where we exist for a reason. And while also supporting our global brothers and sisters. Yeah. So I think that's a significant shift that I see happening. Have you heard me talk about and do you have a sticker of the word missioner? No. Are you serious? Do I get do I get a free sticker? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I got one here on my desk. I'd hand it to you through the screen if I did. But the I was introduced to the word missioner by an Aussie friend in 2008. And I've read it other places, but I like the word missioner as a um as as kind of a segue word between thinking of yourself as as between thinking of being a missionary is only going from your home culture to a host culture someplace else and living in the tension of being a kingdom citizen where this is not our home and so at some level as followers of Christ we're all missionaries yeah and so a missionary is a word that's just enough similar to missionary but not I like that. people that are really uncomfortable with it of like, I can't be a missionary. I live in my own, you know, neighborhood. I've never gone. Yeah. I'm not a missionary. They're a missionary. They live in this other continent and they have to speak other languages. Yeah. But if, if we're just passing through here and our citizenship is part of the kingdom of God, then we're missionaries to our families and to our neighborhoods and to our communities and counties and cities and culture oh yeah if you so yeah if you yeah i love that because if you i mean something that we've tried to emphasize in a lot of our preaching here at new life is that if you call on the name of jesus if you identify as a christian um you are witnessing to god whether you like it or not whether you're doing a good job or a bad job like you are actively and that's what being a missionary is, right? Like you are you are a representative of the kingdom of God. You're an ambassador. Um, and yeah, whether or not you're a good one or a bad one like, is up for debate, but mm -hmm. that's the reality. No, no matter where you are, no matter who you're talking to, you're a representative of that. 
What else? Yeah. Is, there, is there one, two other yeah, things I out think, of this workshop? I think when I talk about Gen Z informed discipleship, um, the slide talking about get close and listen up towards the end, it's like the third to last slide or something. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I forget that you can see my slides. And so I'm just like scrolling here and you're going, uh, are you having trouble? Yeah, checking your email. Trouble. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay. So there's the Q&A one. Speak the unspeakable. Get close. Get close to the there it is. Okay. Yeah. I think at the heart of this and at the heart of um, so many issues, right? Like one of the enemy's most effective schemes is convincing us that we are each other's enemies. And um, we forget that the you know, the war that is waging is not on flesh and blood, but it's against spiritual powers. Um, but so many of, at the heart of so many issues that we're wrestling with today, not only in the church, but as people, is that we have dehumanized each other and that we have, and um, we're viewing um, people through the own lines of a category we've placed on them, or we're just, you know, we are distant from them. And there's something that's so powerful about proximity. So the, the simple description of missioner that was given to me is, anyone that's seeking to join the kingdom of God where they're at. I love that. I do too. I, I really connect with that. And I've tried Super to share tangible. as many, as many people as possible, because I think it, it resonates and some people don't get it. And some people do get it, but we all can be missioners. Yeah. Um, and I just, I just want you to know that I'm all on board um, with that and, and also with that shift and that new thing that needs to happen. Like, and this term that I have up here, relational theology, uh, one of my favorite examples within our tradition is John Wesley did not affirm women in ministry until he spent time doing ministry with women and said, Oh, like the Holy spirit has clearly spoken on this matter. Like the spirit can work through women. And then he affirmed women in ministry. And so I think that is a beautiful story of relational theology, that when we are drawing conclusions or treating people a certain way outside of the context of relationship, where we're intentionally drawing close and listening and sitting in your struggles and sitting in your celebrations, uh, then we have an inaccurate and incomplete picture of them. Uh, so that, I mean, that if we are not present with people, our theology will feel distant to them. I mean, we've probably all had that experience where there's somebody maybe in our workplace or maybe it was in high school where we didn't really know them and we had a certain idea about them and didn't like them but then we had some kind of humanizing experience or conversation when we're like oh you're not the villain that I painted you out to be uh, that I think that's a very human experience that most of us have so I think um I have this image of the church being like that James 119, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Like what if the church fully embodied that? Like what if we were so quick to listen to people in their anger and in their pain? What if we were slow to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger and we just knew how to, maybe I even disagree with you, but I still know how to sit with you and um, treat you like a human and validify your feelings, even if I disagree with you or I disagree with the way you're living your life. I think if we don't figure out how to do that, we will continue to live in polarization and division 
because we're never going to agree with each other. That's impossible for all of us to have all the same opinions. So we have to find a way to live unified while disagreeing. Uh, we have to find a way to listen to each other. So mm. I think that is so many misconceptions that we have about each other across generations, across race, across gender, across socioeconomic status is because we are distant to each other and we're not listening to each other. I think competition is a big one. I struggle with that a lot, like getting caught up in the comparison game. And like, if you're, oh, if you're doing a better job than me, then that means you're a threat to my success. You know, just this kind of scarcity mindset that we carry into our relationships with people and then they become our enemy. I think that's a very natural, you know, survival instinct almost psychologically for us. Um, but as you were, it's funny, as you were talking about asking yourself, who is my enemy? I was reminded of the parable of this good Samaritan and asking like, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus is basically like, well, your neighbor is, you know, the person, you know, it's the person right in front of you that you're called to love. Like you, we don't get to draw those lines. Be the church. Yes. Be the church for the person in front of you. It's, you know, it's that proximity. And so kind of on the other end of who is my enemy? Well, the whole the irony, the oxymoron of loving your enemy is that when you show love to somebody, they can no longer be your enemy. So it's like we are actively working against our like, you know, <laughs> biological rejection of this person. And um, by invite, you know, a phrase we use a lot in the church, inviting people to the table. Like when you sit at my table, I you're no longer my enemy. Like I have deemed you as being worthy of my presence, worthy of my time, worthy of my resources. And so it's, yeah, it's super countercultural and even like counter biological. Cause like you said, we want to view people as threats. And I personally, I mean, I'll be like vulnerable here. Like I think oftentimes when I view other people's threats, it's in areas where I'm not trusting God enough. Yeah. Um, like when I view other people's theological stances or their approach to ministry as something, oh, that's wrong. Like if I get caught up in that game and I view them as the enemy, then, well, then I'm putting my trust in my own ability instead of the work of the spirit, you know, to guide me and to guide them in their ministry and their theology. And so mm. for me, I'm often convicted of a lot of the times I'm making enemies out of people who I'm saying like, God, I don't trust your work in their heart enough. And so they're yeah. an enemy. <laughs> That's where I get convicted. Like, oh, I did it again, <laughs> doing it again. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing that. Um, on on this get close and and listen up slide, there's a bullet point in here, a note on deconstruction. Un unpack that if you'd be willing to. Yeah, uh, I think one of a a conversation that we see a lot in discourse between um, maybe more so millennials and Gen Zers than just Gen Zers with um, older generations in the church or just in relation to the church in general is this idea of how dangerous deconstruction is and uh, in a way it's almost feels like it's the church versus people who are deconstructing their faith and mm. commonly deconstruction is a phrase i'm sure you're familiar with it when people are really questioning the faith that they were brought up with they're questioning the church maybe they're even questioning authority they're questioning scripture it's just this um, process of 
questioning things and deconstructing this faith, like pulling it together and trying to put the pieces back together. And where I think the fault there is, is we forget that deconstruction is a natural part of psychology. Um, when people reach the age of being a teenager into young adulthood, into their 30s, it's this phase of taking what I inherited, taking my childhood, my childhood experiences, my formational family experiences, and now I'm stepping into adulthood and trying to decide who I am, what do I think about life, what do I really believe about these things, that's a natural psychological process that every single generation goes through. And so um, when we are distant from people who are deconstructing, when we push them outside of the church because, oh, you're questioning God, you're questioning scripture, you're questioning things you're not supposed to question, we are communicating that it isn't safe in our church, it isn't safe in our community to be authentic and to really wrestle with your faith which I think if we all sat down, we would all agree that actually wrestling with your faith is healthy. That's what makes it stronger. That's what makes it your own. Yeah. Um, that picking apart the things that you're wrestling with instead of just like brushing them under the rug and forgetting about them is a healthy development of faith. Um, so again, when I see this disc discourse of deconstruction and it feels like it's, you know, the church versus millennials and Gen Zers who are um, deconstructing, I think what I said in my workshop was people who are actually in relationship with people who are deconstructing realize that it's not a threat, uh, that it's just a natural part of the process. And so, again, if we choose to get close and listen up to these people, we can actually help people who are deconstructing or who are wrestling with their faith wrestle with these things within the context of faith. We continue to worship. We continue to fellowship together. You are still my brother or sister in Christ. I will still love you, even though you're wrestling these things. And even on the note of what you just talked about, maybe we're even making enemies of people who are deconstructing. Um, so we should be loving. Yes. And showing yeah. hospitality to and the table and all the other things that Jesus exemplified and invited us to. Yeah. And if we don't create space for people to authentically wrestle with their faith within the church, then we tell them they have to find answers outside of that. And that's where we do see people who are deconstructing deconstructing actually leave the church because it's almost like the church was like, well, here's the door on your way out instead of like, yeah, I'll sit with you and listen to you in this. I've grown in, in my journey in, in all the different seasons can, and continually because I've been able to journey with people that will help me hold the questions that I have. And yeah. you know what? Um, that doesn't mean that they're, they're giving answers or that they, they even know answers to give. Um, the best mentors that I've had have allowed me to they've journeyed with me but allowed me to struggle for the answer so that mm. I can get stronger like you were describing yeah I think we lose sight of how powerful the wilderness is right like God called the Israelites to walk through the wilderness for years so that he could spend time developing them from people of Pharaoh into people of God and then we see Jesus goes into the wilderness early on in his ministry 
And I think that maybe deconstruction is a sort of wilderness in our faith where you really are fasting and peeling away the layers and trying to see what is the essential meat here. Mm. That's good. Well, I've got one um, final question for you. And, you know, I originally when I talked to you about setting up the Zoom and going through your slides, I thought, oh, we'll go through slide by slide. Maybe we'll set up two conversations because one won't be enough to do the slides. But I wanted to get to the heart um, of it and not just the 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 information is great, but not just the information, because what I experienced in the workshop was the the heart of your intention and your hope for the church and for the generations that have come and for the and the generations that are coming. And so here's mm -hmm. my, my last question for us is, um, as, as a Gen Z pastor, how old are you? 24. Okay. So I'm like almost twice as old as you are. <laughs> what do you, what do you want to say? What yeah. Heard in Gen Z. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. Cause like I mentioned, one of the reasons why I chose this topic is because I'm living and breathing in this that I have a lot of friends who are either um de-churched like they grew up in the church and have since not necessarily walked away from faith but walked away from the church or walked away from a certain understanding of faith and um I am also in a lot of like I said non-christian circles where people aren't scared to just speak freely against the church which is um Again, I try to never view that as a threat, but as an opportunity to listen to people and see where our witness can be better. And so I think where my heart is with my generation, and I would say, especially for maybe um, other pastors who are my age or people who are in the church my age or who are thinking about leaving the church, is that people are imperfect everywhere. Uh, the church isn't the only place that is hypocritical or imperfect. Um, and that I genuinely think, I don't think we need to leave and write off the church. I think we need to stay and do the work that we feel passionate about. Mm -hmm. Like If we wish the church was more hospitable, then how am I, as a member of the body of Christ, making sure the church is more hospitable? If I wish the church um, spent more attention on, you know, justice issues and bringing um, compassion to my local context, because I see all the people who are hurting in my community, that how am I doing that work and encouraging that work in the body of Christ? Um, I think it's, I understand why people, especially people who have church hurt, leave the church. I understand that, but I think that like I said, I genuinely view characteristics about our generation as um, uniquely gifted by God for us to do a move of the Holy Spirit um, here in the United States. Again, I only want to say I'm speaking for that context because I don't understand other contexts. Um, but I guess my encouragement is we are we are the body of Christ. And so we're called to be a part of the work. Um, we're called to encourage people to do the work and not go, you know, the grass is greener on the other side. We're called to to stay and do the good work. And so I guess that is my encouragement um, to my generation is to, to be cheesy, like be the change you want to see in the world, I guess, to be the change you want to see in the church. Um, I like cheese. To... cheese. Cheese is good on lots of things. <laughs> like why not? That is it? very true. Yeah. That is very true. It's essential to every meal. <laughs> um. 
And then I guess my encouragement to the church with my generation is get into relationship with people in this generation. I think for us who are pastors, we understand how complicated and difficult intergenerational connectivity is within the church. It's really hard to cultivate those kinds of relationships. So be the type of person in your church who is initiating those relationships. Spend time with people who are older than you, who are younger than you. Like Initiate those kinds of relationships so that we can understand each other better and have a more holistic view of the body of church because we all make up the body, right? Yeah. And we're all members of the body and we all have a purpose. And so um, I guess at the heart of all of this is a call for unity and proximity to one another. Okay. Confessing, I don't do a great job at that. And confessing, like that's extremely difficult in our culture that is, like we live in a very divisive, polarizing time where we spend most of our time having the most important conversations on social media in way less time actually talking to those things in a compassionate, humble way with each other face-to-face. So it's a complex issue, yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate your just heartfelt responses and taking some time to hang out with me and then let me share this conversation with other people. We'll see how God, you or probably won't see, but I think God's gonna use it to encourage others. So thank you, Elise. Well, thank you. I appreciate your time and all that you're doing and making me feel challenged to do more burpees and exercises that are easy. <laughs> well, you know, I do what I can. Yeah. You know, I, just, I just post two or three of them and just say <laughs> more. So. Stokes fire. <laughs> yeah, again, I appreciate the opportunity. This was really fun. So. Sweet. Have a good okay. one. We'll talk to you soon. You too. Bye.